Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast coming to you from the China Institute here in Manhattan. Let's hear you make some noise, folks. The Cynical Podcast is a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily email newsletter to stay on top of the latest news from China or download our new and improved smartphone app or visit the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. While you're there, check out our new product, our new business podcast, the Caixin Cynical Business Brief for a weekly roundup of top stories from Caixin, China's authoritative source for business and financial news. I am Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, who, by the way, I should note, writes memos of all conversations that he takes part in, uh, probably this one too, immediately after they transpire, so be very careful what you say if you intend to obstruct justice. <laughs> Greet the people, are Jeremy. Da, da. Yeah, hi, hello, y'all. Pleasure to be here. And let me just uh, have another thank you for the China Institute uh, for hosting us today. We Absolutely. really appreciate it. <laughs> We are absolutely delighted to introduce our very special guest today. There is no better known figure in the, the study of law in China than Jerome Combe. Jer- Jerry is a professor of law at NYU's law school and was until his retirement of counsel at the law firm Paul Weiss. He is the author of numerous books on law in China, and he's been closely involved, often from behind the scenes, uh, but in a very vital role in many of the historic moments in the U.S. relationship with China. He has been a mentor to countless students, many of whom have gone on to very illustrative careers in law and academia uh, and in government. Jerry Cohen, welcome to Seneca and wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Folks, Jerry Cohen. I knew that uh, before coming here, human rights lawyers were subjected to various forms of punishment. But this is a new form with my nose pressed up against the microphone. (laughs) And I have to congratulate the conveners on their imaginative setting. <laughs> well, we have not turned on the lights yet, Jerry. So. <laughs> <laughs> we do have ways of making you talk. <laughs> so, Jerry, can we start by talking about your early involvement with China? You've told the story before, but it's fascinating just how many people seem to have gotten accidentally involved, uh, only to have China really dominate their whole careers. And I'm certainly one of those people. So, Jerry, what is your China origin story? How did China pull you in so far that, like me, it's become a part of your life? (laughs) Obviously, I owe it all to the South African human rights movement. In 1959, a law professor from Cape Town named Cowan, close to Cohen, 
uh, came here on a barnstorming tour trying to alert Americans to the terrible human rights abuses in South Africa. He excited the interest of a professor at Berkeley's law school who was destined to be the next dean. And the professor, Frank Newman, later a state Supreme Court justice, got the idea that despite Berkeley's inconvenient location, that Berkeley should have a professor of African law. Remember 1959 was the time when the British and French colonies in Africa were coming to statehood and independence. And there were some naive people who believed that Africa was the wave of the future, the way some of us eventually recognized East Asia would go. And Frank went to his erstwhile classmate at law school, Dean Rusk. Hmm. Rusk was then the uh, president of the Rockefeller Foundation. He had been assistant secretary of state under Atchison and Truman, and he went on from the failures of that regime to head the Rockefeller Foundation. And the message he had remembered when he heard this plea to establish a chair in African law was that the U.S. had nobody who knew anything about Chinese law. And he asked Professor Newman, who in America is studying about China and law? Newman said he didn't know. And then a few weeks later, uh, Rusk had Ken Thompson, a leading political scientist who worked with him, call up Bob Scalapino at Berkeley, who was the reigning expert on East Asian politics, etc., and ask whether the law school would be interested in establishing a professorship, or at least a professor, with respect to Chinese law, not Africa. And Scalapino called our Professor Newman, and uh, Newman then tried to find out, should we do this? I was a new boy, having just come from four years in Washington. I knew nothing about China. And uh, Newman said, I can tell you what to do, you're new. Uh, find me somebody who can take advantage of this opportunity, because Rockefeller was offering a unique four-year foundation fellowship to train someone to become a specialist, the first in our country, in the Chinese legal system. And he said, I know you aren't going to do it because you've been involved in Washington and domestic constitutional law, but find me somebody. Find me an East German who studied in Beijing and knows about law. Find me a Chinese who's a leading graduate of an American law school who could take this up. Find me a graduate student in politics who knows Chinese and is willing to start law school. Find me somebody. I spent several weeks trying all of the above <laughs> and couldn't find anyone who thought this was a rational thing to do. <laughs> and indeed, that had, it been wasn't. <laughs> that had been my view two years earlier when the dean of the UCLA Law School interviewing me for a job at a cocktail party to introduce me to the faculty. He turned suddenly on me and he said, somebody should study the law of red China. And without a moment's thought, 
I said, that's a ridiculous, zany idea. <laughs> and yet two years later, having failed to persuade anyone else to take up this unique opportunity, I decided I would do it. I don't believe you tick a single one of those boxes either. Well, I'll tell you, um, I heard I was about to have my 30th birthday, and I heard someone said, Confucius said, establish yourself at 30. Sancture early. Sancture early. And when I heard that, something clicked. And I thought, if you're going to go into academic life giving up a lucrative law practice, etc., you might as well be a pioneer. Do something different that you can't do as a part-time law teacher while you're making a lot of money practicing law. And I went home to consult my dear wife, whom I'm glad to see is here. And she said, if you want to do this crazy thing, okay. She said, just remember one thing. You're only making $10,000 a year. You're taking up the one field in law where no law firm will ever consult you <laughs> and supplement our income. But she said, I'm ready to study their art if you're ready to study their law. And let's go ahead. <laughs> and having that very bright support at home, I decided to throw in my lot. Most people who were charitable thought I must be having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> After all, what was the situation with China in 1960? They couldn't come here. We couldn't go there. We had this fierce residue uh, after the Korean War that had still persisted at the time. Uh, China was, of course, a very tightly run dictatorship under Mao. It got a very bad press uh, in the United States. So it was not an uh, immensely attractive prospect from the immediate point of view. And even worse, it meant that after Kennedy's election in November 1960, I had to stay at my basement desk at home studying my Chinese characters while most of my contemporaries and classmates went into the Kennedy administration. And that would have been a very attractive thing to do. But I thought, stick with it. And uh, I've never regretted it. Jerry, can you tell us when you started to study China, how did you do it? Because, I mean, I understand there wasn't a lot of textual material to work with. And I believe one of the strategies that you used early on was to interview refugees from China who were flooding into Hong Kong because of the, the Cultural Revolution. Well, um, that was in the fourth year of my grant. But in the beginning, I had to use what the Germans call Sitzfleisch a hard rear end, <laughs> sitting in the basement, learning my characters. I made some mistakes in that period. I wanted to go to China right away. I wrote Chairman Mao a letter. I said, why don't you let me come to China? But Professor Harold Berman at Harvard Law School, who was to be my future colleague, he wasn't permitted to go to the Soviet Union, his specialty, until he went up to Khrushchev at a meeting in Detroit, and he said, why won't you let me and my family come for a year? And Khrushchev turned to his foreign minister, and he said, Menshikov, let him in. 
and Berman went. So I thought, I have to try the direct approach. <laughs> and another, I, another story I particularly like is uh, how you actually learned to speak Chinese in front of groups of people. I mean, I presumably you did after the Sitzfleisch approach, you had a couple of thousand characters under your belt. But it's a very different world when you're actually trying to deliver talks in Chinese. Uh, how did you master the ability or, or, or the, gain the self-confidence to be able to actually speak? Uh, well, that relates to Jeremy's question. Because in my fourth year, since we had limited resources of a conventional nature and published materials, we went to Hong Kong and I had to hunt down refugees from China. Three categories, ordinary people who could tell me the place of the legal system in Chinese society, people who had been victims of the system and been punished in various ways, and then the hardest category to find specialists in law, people who knew about how was criminal justice administered, how were disputes settled in China. But I managed to find some representatives of all three, but I had to talk to them, and that gave me immense practice in Chinese. And even though some of them were from Fujian or Guangzhou, I had to learn to adjust to their accent. Fellow from Fuzhou, I interviewed who was invaluable, but for him, every Fu was Wu and every Wu was Hu. And uh, <laughs> it took me a while to adjust, and my Mandarin has never been any good since. <laughs> <laughs> That's my excuse, too, is learning from uh, migrant workers from Hanan. <laughs> but in terms of speaking, that came later in the sense of public speaking. Uh, we managed in 1979 through my Chinese tutor at Harvard to make a connection with uh, the head of the Beijing Economic Commission. In the spring of, winter spring of 79, I was invited by many Chinese agencies, uh, but they only wanted me there for a day or two. Uh, they liked the idea of a Harvard professor but they were afraid to keep me. I was looking for a way to stay in China. We had visited China before, beginning 72, and people were always very courteous, but they never told me the truth. And I was looking for a way to live in China, to learn more, and to be helpful, because it was an exciting time. 1979, China, under Deng Xiaoping, had decided to open to the world, and they desperately needed law. And uh, this was my chance, and my Harvard tutor introduced me to a man named Xiaoyang, not the Xiaoyang who became head of the Supreme Court, uh, but this man became eventually governor of Sichuan province, party secretary of Chongqing. If he hadn't been a liberal, uh, he would have been in the Politburo. But uh, he invited us to stay in Beijing and teach Chinese officials, not students. Legal education in China was just opening then, mm -hmm. and they were afraid of us. Everybody at that point thought, maybe this new policy that includes law isn't going to last. Until then, for 30 years in China, the political pendulum had gone back and forth every three to seven years. So people thought, this attachment to law may get us in trouble when the policy changes. I needed to find a permanent, indefinite 
opportunity to live in China, and Xiaoyang was ready to make a deal for a year. I ended up teaching his economic cadre, Jingji Ganbu, uh, international business law, contracts, settlement of disputes, uh, 30 of them. And we met uh, nine hours a week. I had some help for three of those hours from my friend Steve Orleans, many of you knows, now head of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. He'd been my student at Harvard. And uh, we took on this task, but we couldn't find an interpreter. Uh, there were very smart uh, interpreters, relatively young, whose English was excellent, but they knew nothing about law. There were senior distinguished legal experts with excellent English, but they weren't free to take part in this, and it would have been too low prestige for them. To um, I see where this is going. It's another fruitless search that ends with you going, well, hell, I'll do it myself. Well, that's where, you know, I like the Chinese expression. It may have been the only thing Zhang Qing said I agreed with. <laughs> Self-reliance. And I decided this would be it. So I had to prepare twice for every three-hour session. I had to prepare the content, and then I had to figure out how do I say it in Chinese. My God. Yeah. So it was a great, and after a year of that, they asked me to stay another year, and my Chinese was off and running, even though it was pretty much off in terms of accent. Jerry, I'm going to subject you to one more bit of torture here. Please don't hit the table because it'll it'll create these subsonic concussions on the recording. <laughs> I'm ask you to, even though I've asked you to sit very close, I'm going to ask you also to not. Well, <laughs> one of the things you learn in China is to listen to the leadership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that part gets edited out. Guo So Guo has another. So China, of course, wasn't the only place that was emphasizing self-reliance at the time. There was another country that you managed to to make your way into in 1972, besides China, and that was, of course, North Korea. One anecdote that you once shared that I thought was really fascinating was how they were hardly tired of you constantly comparing things to China. Every time you brought up China, you seemed to irk people. Uh, that seems to have relevance today. Uh, it's an abiding feeling in North Korea. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Well, Koreans have been crushed from all the powers around them. China, Japan, Russia. And they know it. That's why North and South often express better feelings toward each other, despite the difference in their political economic systems, than toward their neighbors. And when we got to Pyongyang in the summer of 1972, well, the first thing you noticed is there were huge lines waiting for transportation to take people somewhere. And I said to my host, well, you know, in China, people use bicycles. <laughs> and Pyongyang means Pingra, it's a flat place. So why don't you use bicycles? And they say, we are a modern country. In our countryside, you may find a few bicycles, but we don't need bicycles. Then we'd go and we'd talk about this problem or that problem, and I'd say, well, you know, in China, they do it this way. And then finally they said, look, you're not in China. Please don't forget that. And we don't want to be reminded of China all the time. You might hear the same thing today. 
Oh, today, of course, uh, you have many more political reasons uh, for enmity and resentment between the Chinese and North Korean people. Jerry, another request for a story from your, your early days in, in East Asia, which we know about from your admirer and I think student Graham Webster. Um, can you tell us about how you and your wife got the Chinese authorities to take you to historical and uh, uh, cultural, cultural sites? sites. Oh, that was great. Uh, in 1972, I tried eight different ways to enter China. We'd been waiting 12 years. Until that time, studying China was like studying Roman law <laughs> or studying the moon. We couldn't go there. And of the eight ways I tried, the one least likely to succeed came through. An invitation to a group of, you might say, politically progressive, but not communist, uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists that I'm glad to see is still active today, yes. considering the North Korean problem, for example. Well, uh, what we uh, wanted to do was to learn all about North Korea, but be honest. And that was created a certain amount of tension. Uh, because when we went to uh, uh, North Korea, they kept saying to us uh, all these things about uh, how beautiful their life was, and yet they cut us off from any chance to have realistic exposure uh, to life there. Uh, and that was uh, a very difficult uh, time. In China, we had learned in response to your question, Jeremy, uh, how to cope uh, the easy way. For 10 days, for 10 days, uh, we had uh, been waiting in Beijing for really two things. One, uh, were we going to meet Zhou Enlai? The other was, were we going to be allowed to visit uh, two of the great sites in China that have been very important uh, to Chinese artistic development, and that Joan particularly uh, wanted to see. And uh, we waited and waited and waited, and no invitation came to see Joe and Lai. And the night before the uh, departure date, we were going to leave late afternoon Friday, and this was Thursday night, our excellent guide, a fellow named Li Mingda, who's still around and a very capable person, he came in to tell us the disappointing news that we couldn't go to the artistic sites that we had wanted to go to. And he left us about 8.30 in the evening. And after he left, Joan, who seldom gets angry about things like this, she said, those SOBs, they really, all I asked them for was one opportunity on this whole 30-day trip, and they wouldn't let us go, uh, et cetera. And uh, we wanted to go to Luoyang and to Xi'an also. And uh, when she started to express her feelings, I motioned to her to speak louder. And uh, toward the lampshade. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> and I thought this might be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next morning at 8.30 in the morning, the same guy who had given us the bad news, he came in very excited. He said, I have good news. <laughs> you can go to Luoyang and Xi'an. 
wasn't that wonderful? It's change of mind, and then it lunch, still works. It still works. I mean, they had a farewell lunch for us with the great scholar Guamoro, mm. who was then the head of the Academy of Sciences, and this doddering old guy with a pretty woman on his elbow. He says to us, as lawyers like to say, sua sponta, spontaneously, he turns to me and he said, oh, your wife is interested in art history. She should go to Loyang and Xi'an. And I said, what a great idea. <laughs> and that was a very valuable lesson because later when we lived in the Peking Hotel and I had to represent many foreign businesses, knowing that they were listening, proved to be a very valuable way to make my points and get them across. <laughs> I think uh, one of the things that we've always very long admired about you is your sensitivity to, if you will, maybe the, 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 the gravitational pull of history to uh, the, the very various factors that make change somewhat difficult in China. You once said, let me just quote from a speech that you gave 50 years ago, you said, is it any wonder that Chinese leaders maintain a vivid sense of outrage and manifest an almost obsessive concern in vindicating and preserving national sovereignty? To condemn them, as writers have done, for retaining the 19th century notions of sovereignty that they were taught by the West is like condemning American Negroes for being obsessed with achieving the equality that they've promised and that we have enjoyed for for a century. In both cases, the average white observer is almost totally unable to conceive of what long-imposed second-class citizenship means. So with that in mind, with your, your sort of uh, new, more nuanced and sort of historically astute uh, understanding of, of China's predicaments, I want to ask you about your sense for the development of the rule of law in China. Uh, you've been watching it for a very long time now. Uh, and since reform and opening began, I mean, there are those who would argue that there has been significant progress. Others would see, you know, uh, a, a lot of of, 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 of backpedaling in recent years. How do you assess progress given uh, what you what I think might be realistically expected given China's particular circumstances? It's historical inertia. It's it, the difficulty of achieving escape velocity from Chinese gravity. Is, if, if, if it, well, that's a great question that requires a one-year course, uh, which I <laughs> often give. Uh, but it happens to be much more than an academic question. Uh, it happens to be as important as today's administration of government in China and Xi Jinping's thoughts about how to run a government and to what extent you should allow dissent, uh, etc. Because uh, this question has plagued China at least 2,500 years. It goes back to the debate between the Confucianists and the legalists. Uh, the Han Dynasty that came in for the first time in the third century BC found some way to reconcile Confucianist values and legalist values. The Confucianists believed in what became known as feudal hierarchical values. A father has to behave like a father, a son behaves like a son a wife like a wife and their relations are regulated in humane, predictable ways. The legalists were different. The legalists believed you have to run a society through a harsh rule by law. You had to use law as an instrument of what we today would call authoritarian power to get people to do the right thing. You didn't try to improve their thinking. You tried to stimulate 
their desire to avoid punishment. And legalism uh, really was an instrument of control that was unattractive to many people. But in the Han Dynasty and thereafter, it blended with Confucianism because the rulers of China saw, from their point of view, you had to use a harsh legal system with no real protections for individuals, but you could do it to enforce Confucian values so that your legal system would reflect uh, Confucian philosophy. And you punished a son who attacked his father or revealed his father's crimes differently from the way you would punish a father who handled a similar problem with his son. So this has endured. Of course, uh, today's government in China is the heir to this authoritarian tradition. And as I think about the current campaign to exterminate human rights lawyers, uh, sometimes physically, to destroy them in order to destroy human rights lawyers, I think back how this is consistent with the Chinese tradition. Xi Jinping sometimes, in an attempt to find some new value system for the Chinese people to replace the communist values that they, nobody pays that much attention to, and to replace the Western values, the universal values of constitutionalism and judicial independence, etc., trying to give the Chinese people some new uh, you might say, ideology to cling to, he occasionally resurrects Confucius. My name, as has been said here uh, in Chinese, Kong. I was given that name because Confucius was interested in law and my elegant tutor thought it would be an appropriate name for me. But when I first visited China in 1972 and I showed them my name card with the name Kong on it, the communist leader said, Bushing? Not good. I said, Weishama Bushing. They said, don't you know we're in the midst of a national movement to criticize Lin Biao and Confucius? <laughs> and they gave me a totally uninteresting, different name in Chinese. Ka'an, which sounds like Cohen, but that's its only virtue. And uh, recently, in recent years, when the leaders of China, looking for some nationalist way to support their government, have resurrected Confucius, they've also resurrected my original name of Kong, <laughs> uh, which I use. So I, it has that benefit. But the fact is, uh, occasionally Xi Jinping also invokes the legalists. And then his advisors tell him this is not desirable because the legalist philosophy of an authoritarian government that recognizes no legal limits on its power is too close to the contemporary scene. It's uncomfortable. So you don't hear quite that much about legalism anymore. But, but Jerry, may, is, may I interrupt and stink. ask, um, when Xi Jinping first came to power, one of the early pieces of rhetoric that uh, you could find in propaganda and state media and in his speeches was this emphasis on what Xinhua News Agency would translate as rule of law, Fajr, right? right? Um, and it always seemed to me that the translation didn't really work 
for say Americans or Westerners where we have a, an idea of what rule of law means and that a better translation of what he actually meant would be rule of legalism um, does that make any sense I mean what no, does he mean by rule of law do you think well this is interesting because uh, remember a couple of three years ago now the uh, fourth plenum of the Central Committee, the 18th Central Committee of the Communist Party, devoted its entire conference to perpetuating or promoting the rule of law. And they use the character not for legal system, but for control of government, that fodger. And it seems totally inconsistent with what they preach in terms of the control of the party of the legal system rather than the contrary, the control of the that the legal system has over the government and the party. And this is uh, an irreconcilable contradiction unless you assume what they mean is really not rule of law but rule by law. And you have this tension and you have this ambiguity and this inconsistency because today, on the one hand, they still will talk about the importance of the rule of law, but they don't mean it in any way resembling the way we would mean it. They're equally open about the party must control the courts, the legal profession, the prosecutor's office, of course, the police and the NGOs and any organization, including law firms that have a party organization with it. This illiberal turn is fairly recent. I mean, I think that you could probably argue that there was an awful lot of progress made uh, during the aughts, sort of in the period, say, between 2001 and around the time of the Olympics, or maybe up until the financial crisis. Uh, I think there were, there were probably people who would say that there was quite an advancement in civil society. There was uh, there were a lot of NGOs that flourished, in fact, rights-based NGOs that, that flourished in China. And the illiberal turn seems, in, in the minds of many people, to correspond to you know, Xi Jinping's ascension. Uh, do you Are you somebody who sees this as essentially systemic, the, the, uh, the progress that you've seen or the, the, uh, the movement to thwart that progress? Or do you think that it, this, is, this comes down to individual leaders like Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, or like, uh, of course, Xi Jinping himself? It's both. Uh, it's interesting that uh, although he occasionally invokes Confucianism with its association of filial piety, respect for your parents, Xi Jinping has disrespected his father, Xi Zhongxin, in the most blatant way. After 16 years in the wilderness, uh, Xi Zhongxin, who had been a leader of the Maoist group, then put into political exile in the countryside, he came back to Beijing and he started to preach in 1981-82 the importance of the Communist Party allowing freedom of expression. He said, we will never achieve our goals without freedom of expression. And we should foster that, even at the highest levels of the party. And that's precisely what his son has rejected and doesn't want to uh, hear about. I think individuals make a very important, uh, play a very important role in Chinese history. Mm -hmm. Do we need to say more about Chairman Mao or about Deng Xiaoping? 
or now Xi Jinping, but the system itself is very important. We've talked quite a bit about history now, uh, and I think it's, it's in one point of reference, of course, has been Confucianism. Uh, you obviously have a place in your heart for the sage. There are people who would argue that Confucianism itself, with its situationist ethics, with its particularism, is a hindrance to rule of law. Well, how do you feel? Do you feel that, that I mean, you look at a, a place like Taiwan, which uh, arguably has preserved more uh, of, the, of these traditional Confucian values and has built a system of rule of law. I mean, there are people who, who argue that China's lack of a transcendent religious order at all, uh, that the, 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 the historical absence of uh, that tension between secular and ecclesiastical authority that was sort of uh, a tribu- that, that many people would say Francis Fukuyama in his recent book on political order, the origins of political order, would attribute to uh, to to the role of the church and its battles with the state. This absence in China, how do you feel about that? Do you think that that, that the, there is merit to these arguments, and and how does this affect the work that you try to do? Because you've 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 now painted a picture where there's an awful lot of historical inertia to try to overcome. Yes. Uh, we recently had May 4th uh, pass here. May 4th, 1919, of course, was one of the major movements in 20th century Chinese history, where especially the youth of the country rejected Confucianism as futile, as responsible for all the evils that made China backward and weak. And it was startling to see the party in recent years turn toward Confucianism, what they had previously condemned as futile. Of course, although Christianity is now struggling for a real hold in China, maybe you have 60 million Protestants and 12 million uh, Catholics, that's still a drop in the bucket when you have 1.4 billion people. It is true that Chinese history has not been marked by the Protestant Reformation or by the two English revolutions of the 17th century or the American Revolution or the French Revolution, uh, all those values that came uh, to be believed in in Western society, the rights of man, the Bill of Rights, etc. One of the problems that we have in looking at China is how radically our own spectacles have changed as we have undergone historical experiences not shared by China. Absolutely. In the 16th century, Portuguese missionaries were in China and coming uh, from a period of highly repressive uh, rule on the Iberian Peninsula, when they looked at Chinese criminal justice, even though the defendant was prostrated before the magistrate, and if he said the wrong thing, would be beaten with the bamboo, they thought China's justice system looked pretty good because it was open. It wasn't the basement justice of the Inquisition. 200, 300 years later, when many more Western observers came to China, they saw the same criminal justice system virtually unchanged, but they saw it with new eyes because the West had gone through all these revolutions I mentioned, and Chinese justice looked cruel 
and arbitrary and no defense for people and of course nothing like a legal profession that the West was gradually uh, developing. Uh, my own feeling uh, about China is the absence of that kind of historical experience, not only the failure to have a Protestant Reformation, what Max Weber and others have emphasized, but the broader whole revolutionary uh, impact on our values and experience, China didn't have. It had a different experience. And that's the historical record that has to be dealt with. There were no lawyers in the Qing dynasty. There were a few types of people who quite illegitimately often tried to defend people or give legal advice, but they were often punished. And it was only in the 20th century after the Manchu dynasty was overthrown that lawyers began to show up. And some of them, unfortunately, behaved in ways that did not enhance the values uh, or the reputation uh, of this new legal uh, profession. Uh, I had a student, a very good one, who died recently named Victor Lee, Lee Howe, who got his doctoral dissertation at Harvard Law School and then produced a book in the mid-70s called Law Without Lawyers. And it was his idea that this new China was going to be a different place. I think there are a lot of people in New York who might actually like that idea. It sounds good <laughs> uh, until you get down to cases of what it means in your life. And uh, his idea was that China had a different tradition. Why should we foist lawyers on China? And China could modernize without lawyers. Well. It was a stimulating book, and it made the study of China even more interesting uh, than I had originally thought when it still was under Soviet influence uh, in the 1950s. But Deng Xiaoping didn't read that book. And in 1978, when he decided China had to modernize and open to the world, he resurrected the Soviet legal system and then started to engraft Western legal institutions and legal education on China. And it made it a little disappointing in a way, although I had predicted in the 1968 book that this would happen, that after Mao left the scene, China would go back to having some kind of a formal legal system with prescribed legislative norms and procedures and institutions. And uh, what we had to see was this fascinating development since then of a kind of a melange, a kind of a, a mixing of traditions. Chinese tradition is still very important. Look how unsuccessful they are at eradicating torture. Confessions important. And so, I mean, this relativism, this relativist streak then in your thinking, how does it, does it soften your criticism? Does it cause you to cut them a little bit of slack uh, when, when you take them on, for example, for Xi Jinping uh, betraying the, his, his filial obligations to, to, to his father and, and, and not championing free, free expression, for example? People think I've become more hardline as I've aged. And that sounds attractive as a philosophy. Older people get hardening of the intellectual arteries, etc. Uh, I like to think it's more a response to a different situation in China. 
we've been waiting since December 78 for something approaching a more genuine rule of law, as I indicated earlier. You're right that in the period 2002, 3, 4, 5, things were pretty optimistic in yes. China. Yeah. For the first time since the 1980s, before June 4th, 1989. But since about 2005, things have been regressing. And I always try to cut slack. I try to recognize areas where China has developed a legal system, especially with respect to economic development and the attraction of foreign trade technology and investment. But I also emphasize that you really judge the legal system by how it treats the people it regards as uh, problems and offenders. And I inevitably am disappointed, and in recent years, because of the vicious, vicious suppression of human rights lawyers, some of whom are my friends I've worked with over a decade ago, we began to cooperate. Uh, I, I'm very, I have very strong opinions on this. I urge you to pay attention tomorrow to the hearing uh, that will take place, a uh, subcommittee of the House of Representatives, a foreign affairs committee where four wives of uh, human rights activists and lawyers from China in a very spunky new development going public to try to tell the world how abusive the treatment of their husbands has been. You've got to admire these women. This is a new phenomenon, women banding together to speak out it's only really started in the last two or three years, and I hope they'll have an impact on the American people more than the news that comes out of China daily where we're sort of hardened. So, Derry, what, what about what do you make of the theory that, <clears throat> OK, if you want political rights, freedom in China right now, it's just not realistic. It's not possible. And yes, uh, it is an extremely repressive environment if you are a, an intellectual, a dissident, a, a journalist, a troublemaker of any kind. But in the time that you've been studying China from a situation where there really wasn't a rule of law of any kind, now uh, if you are a company, for example, that China has a body of law that and a court system that more or less works, uh, and that a lot of the time ensures that, you know, if there's a commercial dispute, for example, it will be resolved in a reasonable way. Uh, if somebody's infringing on your intellectual property rights, you now have various ways in China where you can uh, cause them to, you know, cease and desist using the legal system. And that once there are sufficient people involved in this type of uh, relationship with the law where they see that, you know, uh, a company's competitor is doing something underhanded and they, they have a, a legal means of uh, redressing the grievance, that the next step after that will be a liberaliz liberalization of political freedoms and that you will see rule of law actually start to extend into uh, the kind of in individual liberty that, you know, I probably most yeah, of the people I mean, in this room think is a good development thing. theory still, right? right. I Yes. So, uh, does that does that make any sense to you? I mean, do you think that it made that so much sense to me? I've devoted decades of my life to trying to make that living law, you might say, and I have to recognize that it has its limits. 
today China is improving, for example, intellectual property protection has special divisions within most of its uh, urban courts. Uh, sometimes there are fair trials, but often there aren't. Guanxi relationships has not disappeared from economic disputes or any others. Behind the scenes cultivation of judges is very important. Important disputes of an economic nature are often not decided in court, but they're decided in secret conversations between various government agencies. And corruption is a huge problem. Uh, it's really a huge problem. And whining and dining of judges uh, is only part of it. And politics plays a big role even in important cases. Uh, because these are policy questions. I've been involved in litigation, the dispute between a uh, Chinese-American joint venture and a American company, where the whole dispute uh, went up to the prime minister's office when Zhu Rongji was the prime minister. And they talked about what's a wise rule for the court to endorse in terms of economic development, this was not a corruption case. Uh, this was not a Guanxi case, but it was also not a case that was really decided in court. Courts often are quite frank about they have to wait for the party's instruction. And the role of a major party leader, just putting a little remark on the document conceals somebody's fate. I've been in, in the case where somebody was executed uh, in Hainan province when uh, the defense lawyer who was retained for the case, one of the leaders in the Chinese defense bar, told me the judges would weep because they felt this man didn't deserve to be executed. But when a major leader puts the word down from Beijing, you want to keep your job, you do, you do what you're told. Jerry, you were and scene. still are. You still, you were and you still are quite close to a number of of, of leaders from Taiwan. Uh, in fact, uh, I was here in New York not too terribly long ago when you interviewed uh, Ma Ying-jeou, former president of Taiwan, uh, at the Asia Society. It was a, a terrific talk. Uh, my my uh, my question is, is about what. China might glean from looking across the straits at, at, at Taiwan's progress. And here again, you know, we, we touch on a lot of history. Uh, Taiwan has made tremendous progress. Uh, you've written a book, you co-authored a book about the, the ending of the hooliganism law uh, and how that was that represented such an advancement, how they gave up the, the, their version of the laogai, the education through labor uh, system. And you know, clearly the intent of the book was to show how Taiwan might set an example for for where China might go. What are the the what can China learn, and what are the limits to it? Because these are, after all, two very different places. On the one hand, Taiwan stands as a clear example that just this this nonsense essentialism that says that Chinese people are somehow uh, genetically incapable of of rule of law or democracy is just a guff. It's total nonsense. But on the other hand, this is. 25 million people compared to uh, you know 1.4 billion people very very different historical experience of very di uh, what 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 does Taiwan tell us well uh, of course Taiwan's experience under 50 years of Japanese colonialism however unpleasant did a lot for the modernization of the country 
and the strengthening of the institutions that eventually did develop into democratic legal institutions. The other difference, and this is a very interesting political question that we don't know enough about, Chiang Kai-shek was a Leninist dictator, but not a communist, even though he learned about Lenin and the Soviet Union just the way the communist leaders of China did, sometimes as classmates and indeed acquaintances, if not friends. And yet Chiang Kai-shek's regime, even though it's predominantly Chinese rather than Japanese, they did develop beginning 1985, 1987 certainly, into a democratic state that's an admirable place from the point of view if you believe in democratic, liberal, reformist government. The communists with a similar Leninist background, but with a communist organization, have never developed a democratic government in any country. My hope was Russia, after the fall of the Soviet Union, would demonstrate it is possible to transform a communist type of dictatorship just the way it has repeatedly been possible to reform dictatorships of a non-communist nature, whether you talk about Greece or you talk about Taiwan, uh, into a democratic state. So this is a, it's a conundrum. And of course, you point out, uh, Kaiser, that Taiwan's a little place the size of greater Shanghai or Beijing, uh, relatively speaking, and it's much easier to develop a governmental system that's decent when, when you have to control 1.4 billion people. Nevertheless, Taiwan, and I celebrate it, is a living repudiation of what you often hear in China about we Chinese. We're not up to running a democratic society. And don't you Westerners try to foist it on us, no matter how many human rights treaties we have ratified. Absolutely. That's what I call the Jackie Chan argument. Right. Um, so uh, on a completely different uh, subject, with the increase in trade and investment uh, you know, between uh, China and the United States, we're getting more and more cross-border litigation, I understand. Uh, so state and federal courts are being asked to enforce Chinese court judgments if, uh, as if they were judgments from <coughs> France or Germany, uh, that is, without second-guessing them. Um, and some federal and state courts have done so, should they? <laughs> It's a profoundly disturbing aspect of foreign relations if one nation's courts consistently reject the decisions of another nation. And this comes up even more, not after a decision is reached in China and attempted to be enforced here. It comes up at the beginning of the attempt to use courts to settle disputes. Mm -hmm. A typical problem is uh, there's an airline crash in China. People are killed. Uh, some of them are Americans. Their families want relief. Insurance companies make offers that aren't adequate. So people want to go to court. Now, if the airline crash occurs in China, it makes evident sense 
the case should be tried in China. That's where it occurred. That's where many of the witnesses are. Uh, that's where the major businesses have been located. And yet, people say, if we go into a Chinese court, we're foreigners, we won't get a fair judgment. We won't even know what's really going on behind the scenes. We are entitled, often American citizens, to a fair court hearing, and so we go to court in New York. And then the New York court is confronted by this question. It may have jurisdiction because some of the defendants have offices or business in the United States, but does it make sense to try the case here even though the court technically can do so? And that raises the question that lawyers called forum non-convenience, an mm -hmm. inconvenient forum. A doctrine that permits courts to say, yes, we have jurisdiction, but it makes much more sense to have the case tried elsewhere, in this case, in China. On the other hand, the people who try to bring the case here say, you're denying us a fair trial. You're sending us into the hands of a communist government that openly boasts about its control of the courts, and that's highly corrupt, and where we will not be given a fair trial. And that's a real dilemma. Right. On the one hand, that, that is a species of extraterritoriality. And uh, you can understand why Chinese would, would feel, would, would take great exception to it. You know, uh, this is coming up more and more in another context, not in the context of enforcing a business court judgment, but in terms of claims to jurisdiction over people. Uh, many Chinese have left China with huge amounts of money that they have often corruptly acquired. And they come to the US, Canada, and Australia, especially because we don't have extradition agreements with China in the hope that that way they can avoid being forced back to China. And this is a big problem right now between the US and China. You've got this fellow Guo Wenwei who's around uh, and who's indicting China every opportunity. The VOA, of course, had this notorious broadcast interview with him that they interrupted when China began to apply pressure. Uh, you have uh, others in this country who have absconded with hundreds of millions of dollars often. And should we send them back? Uh, should we send them back if we think they're going to be executed? And is this something you're still puzzling over, or is this something you have a position on? Pardon? Is this something you're still puzzling out? No, or? I'm not puzzling about it because uh, your mention of extraterritoriality made me think of this because I want to solve this problem. We don't want to keep in this country a lot of people who are highly corrupt. Uh, on the other hand, we don't want to send people back to a country where they're not going to get a fair trial. How do we solve this problem? I want to see China improve its criminal justice system so that we don't have this problem, of course. Hong Kong itself has no agreement to send people back to the motherland in the mainland, precisely because Hong Kong still has the rule of law mentality that British colonialism left them. 
And certainly China and Taiwan are having trouble. I'm working on this particular subject, trying to find out a way where they can reconcile the need to get bad people back at the same time without doing violence to the human rights of the people involved and to our own values. I've been involved in cases like this involving Canada and uh, Australia uh, also. And what made me think of it is one idea I've had that I need to spell out is if China wants people back, it has to guarantee a fair trial. And trying to bring a fair trial to China for the whole country is a huge it may take centuries, but China could create, in effect, an extradition court that would comply with all the international standards of human rights and make it easy for us to send back. But that begins to look like a special extraterritorial court right. that Westerners had in the 19th century. Again, history can't be ignored here, but we can't be prisoners of history. That's the point. That's uh, at the heart of so many issues that, that we wrestle with constantly. Last topic that I want to talk about is one for which, Jerry, you, you, I mean, something very near and dear to your heart, but also something that you, you gained quite a bit of prominence for, and that was, of course, the case of uh, Cheng Wangcheng. Cheng Wangcheng, of course, was the blind lawyer who worked especially on, on issues of forced abortion. He's from Shandong province, a self-taught lawyer who escaped from his, his sequestration in, in Shandong, made his way to Beijing after breaking his foot and falling 200 times, stumbling through the darkness, and uh, was actually brought into the U.S. Embassy in Beijing on the eve of Hillary Clinton's visit to China in 2012. Uh, you were very much involved. In fact, the reason that he was able to come to the United States was because of that very elegant solution that you proposed, whereby he would be invited to spend a year here at, at NYU. But then when he did finally get here, things got very, very complicated very quickly. If I don't know if some of you have read this, an excellent piece by Jonathan Allen uh, in Reuters. It was a long-form piece called Friends Like These, where he, he basically it details the way that he fell really under the influence, I mean, I would unhesitatingly call the baneful influence of people like Pastor Bob Fu and uh, Representative Chris Smith and was basically turned into a pawn in, in American domestic politics in, in what was a very contested election year in 2012. I want to hear you now talk about that that experience now that we've, we've got five years between then and now uh, and how you feel about it now. Uh, do you feel that you made mistakes? Do you feel that uh, uh, things could have been handled differently? I want to hear about your relationship now with Chen. This is the fifth anniversary of Chun's arrival in New York. That's right. Uh, the 19th of May, five years ago. And yesterday I got a call from an intelligent reporter who knew little about China, but who got the idea they should do a piece about the fifth anniversary. What's happened to Chun? What's he been up to, etc. And Fox News, they've never asked me anything before. They may never ask me again. But uh, the fact is, I was glad that they have recollected this. I may have, might have had something to do with that. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so this is, I don't know whether it's Guanxi or what. Just Facebook. <laughs> in any event, Chen Guancheng is an extraordinary person. Uh, 
my wife and I have the deepest respect for him and his wife. We were dear friends beginning 2003, four. I met him when he came to New York on a State Department travel grant, and I thought this guy could be the leader of China someday. He was so smart, so young, so radiant, so articulate for somebody who didn't have much of an education brought up in a poor village in Shandong. And when we went, I was teaching at Tsinghua every fall semester then, and we saw a lot of the Chuns. They invited us down to their poor village uh, in Shandong, unbelievably poor. And we saw the circumstances of this blind man's life, and we became friends. I bought him $100 worth of Chinese law books because he was doing more and more amateur lawyering uh, in the local Chinese court. And uh, I admired him, even though some members of the legal profession in China didn't like barefoot lawyers. They thought these guys are going to ruin our efforts to develop a better reputation. We have to rely on highly educated lawyers who know ethics and know how to behave. And uh, they don't like, not just Chun, but they don't like barefoot lawyers because they think these guys aren't well trained and they'll make our reputation even worse. I brought Chun up to meet the dean and deputy dean of Tsinghua University Law School and an important member of the bar who ran their constitutional law center at Tsinghua. And the dean was wonderful to him, but the other two were not. And I was embarrassed. In a way, I was glad Chun was blind because one of them was just reading the newspaper instead of listening to Chun. But we became very close, and uh, I got him an IBM machine for blind people that he could use the Internet. And uh, I met his lawyers who are still locked up or just released just this week. And we became very close, and I was uh, delighted that I had an opportunity to help bring him uh, to New York and solve a diplomatic crisis, as you say, that existed over his entering the U.S. uh, embassy. And we had a wonderful year. It was totally absorbing for me, as Joan can testify. Chun would call up 7 o'clock every morning to tell me what had happened the night before in China and to ask advice about the day. He was a major part of my life, and it was too much for me because I have other things to do, other obligations, but I felt it was important. I negotiated his book contract. I recommend to all of you that you read his book. His book put out by Macmillan, heavily edited into highly readable English by a wonderful editor uh, at Macmillan, John Sterling. The book bombed. I don't know why it didn't get many reviews. The New York Times Sunday Book Review only gave it a few paragraphs at the back. It's a book I commend to all of you because it tells you a lot about rural life not just about Chun's, but about Chinese rural social life, marriage, and other aspects. Uh, I didn't agree with his account of everything that happened the big week where we had to negotiate his exit from China, but uh, 
he's a wonderful person. He was, as you say, Kaiser, I thought, victimized by the immense pressure immediately on arriving uh, in New York in the midst of the 2012 presidential campaign, where Republicans looking for ammunition against the Obama administration were eagerly trying to persuade him to go to Washington and testify and say things about how the Obama administration bungled uh, his exit, etc. And I just took a different tack. I said, you've just come here. You don't know anything about our life here. Don't do anything during the presidential campaign. Don't listen to either party. Don't go to Washington. And Taiwan uh, DPP rights people were trying to get him to go there immediately. And I said, don't go to Taiwan for a year. Just wait give yourself time. And then there was a struggle of people all trying to get a piece of the action here. And uh, under pressure later, the following year in the spring of uh, 2013, I had things to do in China and I wasn't here for all of the time when uh, he had to negotiate his fate. I, uh, then he made a statement about he was sure that the reason NYU had asked him after 14 months of support to find some new occupation, uh, he was sure we were doing it because we would be uh, otherwise uh, criticized by the Chinese government. Another your NYU Shanghai campus yes, might not get built. I was about to say built, NYU right. has established a campus. but. That didn't make sense. Mm. If NYU had been sensitive, why did we take him in in the first place? We didn't fear what China would say. The NYU government, I thought, overspent on his care and that of his family. I think they spent over four hundred thousand uh, dollars on his year. I had told him as early as uh, the fall of uh, two thousand twelve that he would have to leave after a year because he was even taking faculty housing, et cetera. There were resentments of why is this guy being treated so well? And uh, I told him we would never let him leave NYU without at least as good an opportunity. And I arranged with a very generous donor uh, to give him a fabulous opportunity working for human rights lawyers in China at a group we've organized at Fordham University Law School. And he would have got $150,000 a year, uh, $250,000 a year, plus a $50,000 uh, assistant. Uh, Is but, that still available? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this was mouth-watering to any of us. Uh, but when he came out and criticized NYU, that was a mistake. Right. He was listening to other voices, and uh, it created a bad environment. Now, knowing him, knowing where he came from, and knowing the great values that he endorses and implements, uh, Joan and I have always been very sympathetic. We have been—he's got a wonderful family. He's got a great wife. His two older children, he recently, his wife had a third child just recently, but the two older children are poster children. They're so attractive and intelligent for that they could be advertisements for the China. I hope they'll go back someday. They were great people, and we did not 
become as uh, angry or annoyed with him as most people in New York have been. Maybe that's one reason the book reviewers didn't give him much space or credit. But he's now, for in recent years, been living in Potomac, Maryland, where President Trump's son is about to go to school. I don't know if the kids there are going to the same school. I don't think they could afford it. Uh, but uh, the Chuns are really good people. It's a great story, and uh, it shouldn't be misunderstood. And I would urge all of you to read his book. And he's doing good work, I think. I only now have minimal contact. We got a nice announcement when their child was born. I wrote back a nice letter. But um, I, I'm not close to him at this point. But I'm not a critic either. And it, it seems to me that so often dissidents, critics of China, leave China and then they fall to this sort of factional infighting, this this bickering. Uh, they become ineffective in many ways. They become irrelevant to what's happening in China. Uh, it's it's a fate that's befallen many of them. That's the thing we want to avoid. Right. That's what I'm asking. Is is is, is why does this keep happening? And then what can be done? Look, you know what it takes to be a dissident in a highly repressive society. You know what waging shun unbelievable courage went through. Yeah. I mean, you have to say, well, these are highly individualistic people who don't behave like the rest of us who That's haven't right. tried to resist oppression against huge odds. They're just different people, and some are difficult, and some are highly egotistical. Uh, they want recognition. Uh, they have to scratch out somehow a means of making a living. Uh, they're susceptible to political exploitation by people. So you have to, A, you have to sympathize with them, but B, you have to work hard not to allow our human rights community to gnaw upon each other instead of focusing against the true foe, which is a highly repressive government. Your empathy is undiminished, and it's, it's a really lovely thing to see. Jerry Cohen, thank you so much for, for joining us here today. I know it's... So marvelous to hear so much, so much more I would love to talk to you about. Uh, but we're going to, uh, to, to wind on the, the podcast right now. But if you'll stick around, we'll, we can take some questions from the audience after. But let me, uh, let me say our, our, our thank yous and everything here uh, and, and come to our recommendations section. So as, as you know, we, uh, before we uh, get to recommendations, I do have a few things to say. I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SubChina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And if you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps, and it actually means an awful lot to us. Uh, let's go on to recommendations. Jeremy, as is our habit, you may begin. What do you have for us? i got two things. Firstly, uh, an hour is really not enough um, to uh, hear even a fraction of the stories inside Professor Cohen's brain. Um, and if you want more, which I'm sure you do, uh, uh, he has a great series of videos uh, on his website and on YouTube of uh, reminiscences and uh, stories uh, from his uh, long and fascinating uh, career. And if you're someone who's been in China any time before about, I guess, 2000, 
when the the standard answer to a foreigner asking a question was I don't know Buchingchu or have you got rice mayor you know where is Tiananmen Square Buchingchu I don't know um, there's one particular video I'd like to rem- uh, recommend called the soup is not clear <laughs> yeah, my that's second that's a very good one <laughs> we'll have to hear that story we don't have time for it today but... you know that's the only recommendation for today let's leave it there <laughs> great Jerry what do you have for us I'd like to recommend that we have an administration in Washington that will do more to endorse the rule of law uh, for all. Especially here. Yes. Uh, I'm down with that remedy. For all the sins to which we are gradually being treated by the current administration, one of the least noticed is its absolute refusal to endorse human rights in its relations with other countries, including or especially including China. A very good recommendation and uh, one that I endorse. Uh, mine is a little more banal. It is, it's just the South China Morning Post, actually, uh, because of BARF, the uh, Belt and Road Forum that was held recently in Beijing. That, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, let's not, I mean, I, I, you know, some of us believe that actually we're, we're witness to something that it will have the historical impact of the Marshall Plan. I mean, this is a, I, I shouldn't really maybe introduce so much levity when I talk about it because it's very serious. And in that, in that spirit, I want you to all look at the South China Morning Post. They did this tremendously good. Good uh, explainer on five of the Belt and Road projects on things like the Gwadar port in 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 Pakistan, on uh, the Iran railroad, on the railroad to London, on a few of the of the other major, um, enormous multi-billion dollar projects that, that fall under the rubric of the Belt and Road Initiative, Xi Jinping's signature initiative. So uh, check that out. It's extraordinarily well done. I think you should uh, you should make sure to see that. And uh, I want to hear one more round of applause for our tremendous guest, Terry <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to take it out, and then we'll take some questions. Uh, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldkorn. Special thanks this week to the good people at the China Institute, uh, who we look forward to working with for events in the future. Also, special thanks to Anla Chang and to Sarah Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. All right.